You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. The businesses that will not only survive but thrive the situation are the businesses that can pivot away from what they're doing right now and get into these phenomenally growing industries that, that we're seeing. But the sad thing, James, is a lot of people, they just don't want to do that. They don't want to think outside the box. They're stuck in the traditional way of doing things. But unfortunately, we're in a different world right now. And my message to people that want to own a business is go and buy a business that an owner doesn't want to pivot, buy it, and then you pivot that business and you make those improvements and you change your model and you will do phenomenally well not just now but also when this thing ends some of these businesses are thriving so there's this category of businesses that uh were in one industry but with a little bit of thinking they can pivot to to kind of thrive during today's times and they yes. won't necessarily go down in post coronavirus but there's an opportunity to acquire these companies before they realize they could pivot 
And I guess there's a fourth category, which is companies that have slowed down to the point where they're pretty much out of business right now, but they'll just come back as strong after coronavirus. But this whole situation might have said, you know what, I'm throwing in the towel. I mean, if I was switching careers or trying to figure out what to do post coronavirus or, you know, whatever, I would certainly consider this. So, so what's, let's say June 1st, before the stimulus really kicks in and the economy in a best case scenario starts to surge, uh, what should I do if I want to buy a business? I want to buy a business. What should I do? Where should I look? How should I contact people? What should I be thinking of? Like, what sort of businesses should I buy then on June 1st? What, how should I be thinking? Well, once again, I am excited to have Carl Allen, dealmaker extraordinaire, former corporate slave, but now has bought and sold hundreds of companies and also coaches other people how to do it. Uh, and I figure it'd be great to have Carl back on just to discuss the new normal in this economy and what opportunities might exist. Carl, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me back, James. Going great. Yeah, Carl, you know, um, it, it's such a weird time. And, and by the way, we were talking beforehand, you mentioned you even had coronavirus. So I'm, I'm glad you're, you're, you're feeling better. I'm looking Thank at you. you through Squadcast and, and you look healthy. Thank you. Yeah. Did, I, I did contracted. you lose weight? How many pounds did you lose during coronavirus? I didn't lose any pounds, actually. Um, Uh-oh. I thought no, you would lose your sense of taste during this. And... No, it was crazy. I, I was actually on this crazy four-day trip to the U.S., and I didn't sleep very much in those four days. And I got back and just got really, really sick. And I went to my doctor, and um, he just thought I had a virus because coronavirus in early February wasn't kind of the right. thing that it, it is now. Thing. No, so um, he just packed me off with some meds, and then I actually flew to Dubai on vacation, and I think the heat just made me better. And then when I got home, he called me. He's like, dude, I don't know how to tell you this, but you've had the coronavirus. Your symptoms were perfectly matched to... What, what, what were those symptoms? So I just had a really, really sore throat uh, and a really dry cough, and my chest like really, really hurt, and I had no energy. Um, I just felt like I had the flu. Um, and it lasted for about three days. And then um, I've had the blood test since, and they've confirmed that I've got the antibodies now in my blood. So they tell me, I don't know, I'm not a medical professional, but they tell me now that uh, I can't catch it again and I can't carry it. So I, I'm designated doer all in my house. So I'm the guy that goes out, gets the groceries, takes the dry cleaning and picks it up. I'm even volunteering delivering medication to people that are vulnerable. Oh, so, uh, so I feel like I've got a superpower. Yeah. Like they, uh, they should make it so that they, I, I've been wondering if they're going to kind of, uh, stratify society into the immunes and the non-immunes and the immunes don't have to wear a mask, don't have to do social distancing, don't have to wait in line to go into grocery stores like they're doing in New York City right now. And the non-immunes have to kind of stand outside in the cold with masks and <laughs> yeah. you know, watch the the immunes move freely. I'm I'm in the I'm probably in the non-immune, so I would be wait watching in my mask while you just walk in and out of the grocery store, no problem. Interesting point though, and I know you and I were chatting about this before we we went live. I, I, I think most of the population's probably had this virus. 
Um, yeah, I agree. And virtually everybody has no symptoms. They're asymptomatic. I, you know, if I had it, I'm sure I gave it to my wife and my son because I'm in close contact with them and all of my friends and all the people that I met on vacation and nobody else around me had any of the symptoms. I think it's because my immune system was so low because of all my crazy traveling that I got it. Uh, everyone else that's around me that doesn't have the crazy life that I have, um, you know, has had no symptoms. So I think once we all eventually get tested, um, I think we'll see the vast majority of the population has had it, is immune to it, and then we can get out from lockdown and uh, and get back to normal life. Because I, as you know, I live half of my time in the UK and half of my time in the States, and President Trump has revoked my visa because I'm a Brit and I'm not allowed to come to the US anymore. So I've, I've got my place in Baltimore that I've not been inside for six weeks. Um, so now, luckily, is that because, did he revoke your visa just for the purposes of the coronavirus or are you yeah, uh, wanted yeah. criminal? Um, no, if uh, they, they haven't caught up with me for that yet. But uh, yeah, <laughs> um, they've, they've revoked my, my visa. British citizens are banned from entering the United States until after the lockdown. So, uh, but I, I get to, you know, I got a big place in the country in the UK. So I get to hang out here and spend a lot of time with my family who don't get to see me normally as much. So, uh, um, you know, silver lining, James. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting um, about the immunity and potential immunity and, and how many people have had it. Uh, uh, recently they did a test in Santa Clara. They did an antibody test on, on a large part of the population. And it showed that, the number of people that had that had been infected at some point and had antibodies was about 50 to 85 times higher than they thought. And I had this conversation on the podcast with um, one of the top immunologists in the UK. He's at Imperial College, uh, Dr. Peter Openshaw. And he mentioned that they did this antibody test in Santa Clara and it showed that 50 to 85 times more people were infected than they had thought in all the models and so on. Wow. And so that makes the fatality rate really low. And he was mentioning that, you know, knocking on wood, hopefully this will turn out to be like swine flu, which in, in terms of that metric, uh, that, that when you, when we finally started testing for antibodies with swine flu, it was many more, it was a much larger percentage of the population than we could have previously imagined. And so the fatality rate was much lower than, than initially thought it wasn't as I don't want to say it's not as bad a pandemic because all pandemics are bad, but you know, hopefully this goes down into that category. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. So, so Carl, the the big issue though is when we get out of this, you know, particularly in the U.S. that had such an ex I don't want to say extreme economic shutdown. It is what it is. I'm not judging whether it was an overreaction or not. The reality is though, everybody is inside except for essential workers and. In, in, in almost all 50 states, if not, you know, there's a few states here and there. And now that we're starting to talk about reopening the economy, I think to, Texas actually is reopening some businesses today as we're talking and more will happen over this week by the time this podcast is released. Will there be, what, what, A, what do you think the new normal will look like from a small business perspective? And B, can we look for some opportunities? For instance, will there be more foreclosures on businesses, commercial real estate, real estate, Will there be more opportunity? You know, last time you were on, we discussed kind of the specific techniques for buying a business with no money down. Yeah. And I know I'm talking a lot, but that, that whole phrase, no money down, sounds kind of sleazy, of course. But the reality is that these techniques work. I I, I was drilling you really hard because I wanted to figure out for myself, you know, how one would do this. And we talked about many examples, but I just want to see if, 
any of that changes in your mind and what might be better? Yeah, so so obviously in all walks of life, things are changing. The way we behave, the way we do things. Uh, I even think a lot of human behavior is going to change forever based on what we've been through over the past uh, month or so. But when it comes to buying businesses, what's going to happen is two things. So the first thing that's going to happen is this situation, whether it's impacting businesses, their businesses or not, is going to drive a lot more sellers to the market. So as I mentioned last time, there's around 2.6 million businesses for sale today inside of the United States. And one of the reasons of that is baby boomers. So there's 10,000 baby boomers retiring every day, according to Forbes and the Wall Street Journal. And 90% of them own a small business. So every single day in America... Actually, I want to um, I want to take some notes. So say that again about um, there's there's 2.6 million small businesses for sale. Yeah. How do you so know that you number? Across, so we actually built a model. That there's nobody in the world actually publishes that number. But what we did is we built a pretty sophisticated model looking at all the business broker websites, sampling a whole bunch of deal intermediaries like lawyers, CPAs, wealth managers, financiers, banks. And we statistically model with a high degree of probability what we think the actual number is. And it's it, it's between 2.5 and 2.6 million businesses. So that's roughly like 8 or 9% of total yeah. small businesses. And a small business is defined as a business with less than 500 employees. Um, we define it as businesses with, with revenues sub $10 million. Okay. So sub $10 million, and that's obviously the majority of businesses anyway. There's 36.4 million businesses in the United States, and 99% of them are actually sub $10 million in revenues. Wow. So a lot of those are owned by baby boomers. I actually think we're going to get another baby boomer wave based on what's happening in quarantine. Obviously, couples don't have a lot of other things to do. So I, I think you'll, you'll, you'll see a lot more babies popping out uh, eight, nine months from now. Some interesting statistics. There's a, there's a global condom shortage because most condoms are made by this one factory in Malaysia and Malaysia's under total lockdown for the past four weeks. So yeah. there's probably 400 million condoms out of the global supply that normally would be there. Second, liquor sales are surging. So I agree with you about the baby boom, but <laughs> but unlike the last baby boom, which was basically the children of returning heroes yeah. and women who were working hard for the first time in the in the workforce, this baby boom will be basically a bunch of drunken accidents that yeah. resulted babies. So it, yeah. could, it could be the next <laughs> the next baby boom might end up being titled the last generation, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah. So you've got all these baby boomers anyway uh, going to market to try and sell their businesses, and as I mentioned last time. Again, we've modeled these numbers. Only about one in 12, one in 13 businesses will typically sell because there's just not enough buyers with access to capital and really the sophistication and chops to, from a standing start, go and find a business and actually close on that deal. This is why I'm so passionate about coaching and mentoring entrepreneurs to be able to, to, you know, to kind of do this. Can I ask some bullet questions just to understand? Yeah, sure. So what, what, when you, when you say a small business is for sale, what does that look like? Is that a business in, in an office somewhere, like an accounting business, or is that like a, a laundromat? Is that a, a bar? All businesses, all, all businesses from bars, hotels, laundromats, engineering companies, technology businesses, 
um, manufacturing, retail, transportation, chemical processing, online businesses. It's the whole kind of business spectrum. Okay. So, it, so if you think about it, you, you've got this, uh, you've got all these buyers coming to market and that's going up even more now. And one of the reasons for that, James, is I, I think what we're seeing right now, and, and, and I, I see it every day with, with the people that I'm talking to, is I think this is the straw that's breaking a lot of camels back. So you've got a lot of business owners who've owned their businesses 10, 20, 30, 40 years. They went through the 9-11 situation. They went through the global financial crisis. They're coming up on retirement anyway. And I think a lot of these people, you know, their businesses are, some of them are dying. Some of them are surviving. Some of them are absolutely thriving. And I'll get onto that in a minute. But I think a lot of these business owners are saying, you know what? I think it's now time to retire, hand off my business to somebody else, and then basically go off and do something with the rest of my life. And what what I've realized in my 27 years of doing this, when it comes to the buying and selling of a small business, it's 90% psychology and only 10% numbers. When you're buying or selling a billion-dollar business, and I did a whole bunch of those uh, as a Wall Street investment banker and a corporate M&A guy, those deals are 90% numbers and only 10% psychology. So doing buying a business from a small business owner, it's really a game of psychology and a game of, of building Well, that, that, that's really interesting. Are you saying buying and selling of large businesses is almost like a commodity? Like if I, if I needed to sell for some reason a barrel of oil or an ounce of gold, I, there's no negotiation. There's kind of a price that's the, the world market set. And yep. I go to uh, uh, sophisticated, you know, there's there's buyers with billions of billions of dollars of demand, and I sell my ounce of gold or I sell my barrel of oil. Yep. Uh, uh, I don't negotiate like, oh, I'll give you ten bucks off if you buy my barrel. Like, but what you're saying with small businesses, with with large businesses, there's pretty much a formula, like whatever it is, four or five times earnings or cash flow or whatever. But with small businesses. I guess because there's not there's a lot of sellers, but there's not as many buyers. There's a lot more. It's not a commodity. There's there's a lot there's a, there's again I, I, as you were just indicating, there's less demand. Price is a function of supply and demand, so you can get a better deal. Yeah, and the other thing to factor in, and just going a bit deeper on the psychology is, and I, I did a survey a number of years ago. I, I interviewed over two thousand uh, people that had sold their businesses, and the, the data blew me away. 79% of the people that I spoke to actually didn't sell their business for financial reasons. They got some money, but they were selling their businesses because they wanted to retire. They wanted to leave a legacy. They wanted somebody that would buy their business and be what I call a safe pair of hands. So protect the employees, protect the customers, keep the brand, keep the name above the door. I One of the businesses I bought a couple of years ago, it's a really interesting story. I bought a media company in Burbank, California, that specialized in the uh, the radio industry. And the seller originally wanted $300,000 for this business. When you say media company, they were placing ads for people or they were an information publication for radio professionals or what, what type of business? Yeah, it, it was an aggregate. Basically, it was an aggregator of content. So it would make its own content and then license that out to other radio stations because you you got tens of thousands of radio stations all over the place and most of them can't afford to create their own content. So we would make content 
and then we would license that content to radio stations so they don't have to produce their own. That was basically the business that that we had, and we would uh, we would take everyone else's content and we would aggregate it and also license it to other countries. For example, China goes crazy for US rock and roll and country and Western. So we we would do that. That that was our business. And when I bought that business, um, the owner was more concerned about the legacy of the business than the money. So I ended up getting that business for 95% less than what she originally wanted because A, I agreed in the legals not to change the name of the business and not to change the logo. This person was so much more interested in that than the physical hard dollars that she was actually going to get when she sold. Can, can I ask you some questions about yeah. it? Like what were the earnings of the business? So it was doing just under $200,000 a year. Uh, in in revenues or cash flow? In cash flow. Uh, so so after expenses and after her salary? Yes. Wow. So So what does that mean? So she was taking a salary. She had employees that were taking a salary. She was licensing content and spending money in that. So I don't know, maybe her revenues were actually like a million and you're saying 200,000 went to the bottom line. And then what would happen to that bottom line? It would just stay in the business. So she would either take it out as distributions or she would keep it in to grow. And she was struggling to grow. The business used to be a lot bigger, um, but it went down in terms of size and you know we picked it up really for kind of pennies on the dollar so did uh, you you paid fifteen thousand up front 17 you, 17 and a half thousand 17 and a half thousand and then um you, did you pay an ongoing like thing out of your future profits we did but it was based on an earnout, and it was based on a pretty high kind of watermark level um so up until this day we haven't made any of those payments and and what do you think the business is worth right now like have you improved profits and revenues a little bit we we think the business is probably worth 750 to eight hundred thousand dollars and but you're able to pull out the 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 profit and and her salary so so what was what was she making per year about not counting the two hundred thousand? probably one to 150 including benefits so so essentially right now in in let's say the earnings were even a little or even a little lower now you could pull out you you spend seventeen thousand five hundred, and you're pulling out two hundred thousand a year, roughly, in either income or profit. Yeah, you're making your money back in one month by doing that deal. I mean, that seems ludicrous. <laughs> like, is that really is that common, or like, can it, I do it that? Is, it it it's common if you understand that these deals are more about psychology than they're more about numbers. Because she probably couldn't sell, like she probably would have had to shut the business down and and just abandon it. Yeah, and the other issue is she didn't want to sell to a competitor, which is what we call a trade buyer. And the reason for that is when when a company buys another company, they can do a lot of things to it. So uh, asset stripping is is one of the terms we we see a lot, but they'll 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 strip all the costs out of the business. They'll change the name, change the brand, probably get rid of a lot of the employees because they've already got them in their business. Right. They're basically buying sales and margin and customers. That's what they're buying, um, and that's what that's what the big guys do. That's what Cisco do. That's what Facebook do. You know, it's just the way mergers and acquisitions work at this kind of high level, and it's obviously transcended down. In, in, into our marketplace. So for her, it was more important for her and her legacy to sell the business to somebody 
that was gonna obviously grow it but keep it the way that she wanted it to be kept keep the name keep the location keep the employees treat the customers in in the kind of same way keep the building keep all the things that she built that she's so passionate about she'd rather sell it to me and my business partner for a considerably smaller amount than either a close the doors turn off the lights shut the doors then everyone loses or sell it to a trade buyer for obviously more money who's going to destroy that business destroy her legacy and then she's got nothing left to kind of remember what she's done and you know this business was born in the 1980s so um it had been around for um for a number of years as i said it used to be a lot bigger and it you know it was it was declining she just didn't have what it took to kind of stabilize it and uh, and take it to the next level so and and, these... and how much do you time now do you have to spend like that seems like you have to call up radio stations or radio networks and pitch them on the content you have and license it to them and then you also have to package together content to license so it seems like it's it's man hour intensive potentially absolutely but not for me i'm i'm an owner investor and i am in all of my businesses i don't work in any of my businesses i have obviously all these businesses have got employees including the radio business but more importantly it has a gm that sits in that business every day like you know i'm i'm in the uk right now um i've been to california probably three times since i did that deal and only once have i actually been into uh, the business uh, i have a team and a, and a gm running that business every day for me so i don't have to and the, you know there are some things that we check in on every week i've got some kpi dashboards i'm reviewing the numbers you know we have a monthly call it a board meeting if you will uh, which means that that business is trading and making money and i don't have to be inside of it and that's for me that's really really important because i'm an owner investor that means i can own multiple businesses in loads of different countries and in loads of different niches so so in this um, in this example though if you're if your manager of the business left would you be in trouble um no because i could promote somebody else from within and they would know I what to could, do they would have there's a good enough bench to promote someone yep so the way we run our businesses i don't know if you've ever been through the uh, the eos um stuff from um gino wickman uh, you know we, we we run our businesses like systems um, so we have all of our standard operating procedures, you know, we have a clearly defined culture and a strategy for what we're looking to do that there's three or three or maybe even four people in that business that could step into that GM seat, um, really, really quickly. However, my secret when I'm putting a GM into a business is, is I massively incentivize them. I actually give them free equity, free ownership of the business and I make them my partner. So why why would they want to leave? Uh, they're building wealth by their shares going up in value as you grow that business. They're they're taking a you know decent chunk of the monthly cash flows because they're an equity partner of mine, and so they're earning two to three times what they would earn if they were going and working for somebody else. So uh, that, there's a massive incentive uh, for those people to stay in that business and help me grow it and help me profit from it. So, so now in this environment, like you said earlier, there, this might've been the tipping point for a lot of people to say, you know what, I, I don't even know how this business is going to fully recover. Maybe it's the right. And, and, you know, I've been getting kind of used, I, I, I don't know what they'll say, but I do agree with you. I think less people are going to be inclined to go back 
to their businesses. Now, not everybody, but like I'm thinking in terms of like just New York City where I am, not every restaurant owner is going to say, boy, I can't wait to reopen my restaurant and have nobody come to it. Because, you know, most restaurants, as we talked about last time, most restaurants have only about 16 days of cash in the bank. And I'm just speaking yeah. about restaurants, but I imagine that's true for many small businesses, you know, yeah. particularly with that are employee intensive or, or whatever. You know, I'm part owner of a comedy club slash bar, and I could say 16 days worth of cash. It's probably accurate. And, uh, uh, and we probably go through the same things. And, and the other factor is not that many small businesses were able to get small business loans in the, in the stimulus package. Like we, we were standing in line at the bank to get the yeah. small business loans. You know, it turned out Shake Shack and Roost Chris Steakhouse and all these mega businesses got it. And somehow I don't understand we, you know, many small businesses in New York city didn't, I don't know about other places. So all these together, instead of 2.6 million businesses for sale and X number of buyers, uh, how many businesses do you think now might be for sale? And, and I don't think there are many as buyers as before. So prices might go down. Yeah, absolutely. But I think what, what's interesting is if, if you take any typical small business owner anywhere in the world right now, they're going to fall into three camps. So you've got businesses that no matter what they're doing, you know, they're just going to fail um, because they don't have any way to kind of pivot and survive what we're going through right now. Then you've got businesses that, um, you know, they're, they're kind of immune to coronavirus, like transportation companies. Like I used to own a transportation company about 10 years ago in the UK. I wish I still owned it because, holy cow, um, those guys are killing it right now because the volume of stuff that's being distributed, you know, everyone's buying online, everyone's getting home deliveries for groceries because they don't want to go out to the store. All these transport companies are killing it right now. So... That's the second camp. And those businesses, they're booming, their revenues are shooting up, their cash flows are doubling and tripling. You what probably what, what do they do? They, they're like a trucking company or a logistics company? Yeah, both. Because it, if you think the volume of stuff now that's being bought online and shipped rather than people going to physical stores is going through the roof. So the, the logistics guys that are a part of that supply chain, they're all seeing massive spikes in revenues and cash flow. So it's probably not a good idea to buy one of those businesses because obviously it's going to be inflated in value based on the short-term spike that we're seeing. Once the country reopens in two weeks, four weeks, whenever that's going to be, then I still think a lot of people will buy more online, but I thought it's obviously going to drop from the big spike that we've got now. But it leaves camp number three, and this is where the massive, massive opportunities are. And camp number three are businesses that can quite easily pivot into some of these new big growth trajectories that we're seeing. But the mindset, the psychology of the business owner means they don't want to think outside the box and get into that. I'll give you an example. Manufacturing or engineering. So my buddy in the UK, he owns a, an engineering business that he didn't buy it, he founded it. He's, he founded it about 15 years ago. He makes components for performance sports cars. Now, clearly, all of the sports car manufacturers that used to buy his stuff, they're not buying any of his stuff right now because all the cars are stockpiled. No one can go to a dealership and buy a car, or at least they can't in the UK. So all of his customers called him and said, hey, sorry, 
we don't want any components for the next three months. Uh, so he called me up and he's like, Carl, what, what do I do? Um, do I just close my business down? Do I try and sell it? I, I said, no. What industries right now are absolutely booming that you can serve? He said, well, I don't know. I said, well, what's the one thing in the world that nobody has enough of? And he said, medical devices, ventilators, all these hospitals, these mega hospitals that are getting built. They've built a hospital in London called the London Nightingale. It's in the old Excel conference center. It's a kilometer long, this place. It's the largest hospital in the world. And they're crying out for these ventilators, these medical devices. And our government's printing money like crazy. So I said to him, understand the supply chain of a medical device and go and make some of the components that will fit into that supply chain. So he's been doing that for about four weeks now. And he's absolutely killing it. He's hiring more people. He just can't keep up. So, Carl, can I, can I ask about that? So he what did he when he already had like kind of a factory making components or he was just yeah. kind of fulfilling the supply chain and putting and then and then his factory puts them. So I'm just trying to understand how you switch from manufacturing one thing to manufacturing another. I'm I'm really naive about this. I don't know. Yeah. So so if, if you take like a, if you take a typical small engineering company, they have what are called CNC five axis machines. So I used to own a business like this about six, seven years ago and I sold it. So you got these big machines in 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 these businesses and you basically you stick a piece, you stick a cube of metal into this machine and you upload a drawing into the software, the CAD software, you push a button and then this machine has all these cutting tools and different things and it goes in and it whizzes around and it makes a component. It can make a component for an airplane, it can make a component for a car, it can make a component for a submarine, and it can make a component for a medical device. So he's pivoted his business. So instead of tooling and making gear components for, uh, for Porsches and Ferraris, he's now making some of the components that go into the build of a ventilator. And, and, who's, which, and who's a buyer? So the hospital's not the buyer. The vent like like General Motors is the buyer, right? Like who yeah. who is the buyer? Yeah. So in the in the it's what we call the OEM, the Original Equipment Manufacturer. So the guy, the company that sells to the hospital, whether it's Siemens, GE, uh, Honeywell, all those different businesses. The um, it, it, if you take one of these ventilators, the company that sells it, the only component in that product that they make is the sticker, the logo. Everything else is subcontracted through to a supply chain, and it's even assembled and then delivered to them. When, well, when I, I, didn't, for, I didn't know that, and I, I, Carl, I'm really sorry I keep interrupting, but no. Honeywell, you always think of as like a manufacturing, you know, mega company. They, 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 they can't do the manufacturing themselves. Wouldn't it be cheaper for them to do the manufacturing themselves of all the components? Not necessarily, because these these complicated products, whether it's a laptop, a submarine, an airplane, or a medical device, it's got quite a wide, sophisticated supply chain. So there might be 15 different companies in the supply chain. So you've got the casing, you've got all the other different components, you've got the software, and it kind of moves through like the conveyor belt. It's like a supply, it's like a conveyor belt that moves through, and everyone's putting all these different components in and Honeywell White might assemble some of it, but uh, but not a lot. And when I was at HP, even though I was doing mergers and acquisitions, um, 
I once looked at a HP laptop and there's 2,417 components, I believe, in your HP laptop. And the and the only two components that are HP are the logo on the screen and the logo underneath. Everything else is subcontracted and made by other people. I think the iPhone's very, very similar to that. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop. Really, I was even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job. I love what I do. But I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And 
the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. So your friend basically start, figured out how to make, I don't know, the side plate of a ventilator or some micro component of the, the ventilator, called up one of the people at the, at the end of the supply chain, like like a Honeywell, and what did, did he say? Did they already have people or or did he say, hey, include me in your order or what did he, how did he get that deal? Yeah, so what he did is he researched that space and he figured out who were the companies around him in the supply chain that would massively need the parts that he was able to build because he had the equipment, he had the tooling all set up. So he figured out what pieces were required, what were in the kind of hot demand, and then he basically set to building those components. And he's making more money now doing that than what he was doing before. And, and I was speaking to him on Fridays for the weekend. And I said to him, so after all this is over and Porsche call up and they want their components again, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm going to stay in the medical supply chain because A, the margin's better. There's a lot more supply that, that I can serve. And my time to market is much, much faster because these people, they want this stuff like right now. You, you know, you the, I don't know what the total market is now for for these uh, these ventilators, but you know it's got to be in the tens, if not hundreds, of millions. Uh, yeah. So that and that's just so an that example. That will end though at the end of this, right? So he'd have to figure out other you know medical devices to kind of yeah. cater to. Or or he goes back to what he was what he was doing previously, and you know I'm seeing this in the clothing sector. So obviously not a lot of people are going out right now, so they don't need new clothes. But these clothing companies, they're pivoting and they're solving the second biggest problem we have in the world right now, PPE. which is PPE. Um, and even companies like Burberry, one of the most expensive clothing brands in the world, they're not making clothes right now. They're making PPE. They have deployed their factories to solving the massive shortage of, 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 of PPE. There's, there's a worldwide shortage in, in, in the billions when it comes to PPE equipment, even Zara, the big uh, Spanish uh, clothing company, you know, they're doing the same. And where I'm going with this, James, is it's all about the businesses that will not only survive but thrive the situation are the businesses that can pivot 
away from what they're doing right now and get into these phenomenally growing industries that, that we're seeing. You know, the technology industry is booming because everyone's working from home. Anybody that sells pretty much anything online, those guys are booming because um, you can't go out to a store to buy stuff now. You've got to buy it online. The whole logistics and distribution sector for getting all these things around are, are thriving as well. So for any business, you just need to pivot. You know, I have a friend that owns a restaurant. And about a week into the lockdown, she called me and she said, you know, I'm going to have to close the doors. I'm like, no, find all your customers, launch a Facebook app, get everybody, tell everybody that you'll do home deliveries. So all the different things that uh, they used to buy, um, you know, tell them, you know, my local uh, wine uh, um, kind of retailer, uh, I called him and I said, dude, you know, you got to be selling your wine to all your customers and you know, get involved in, in doing all that delivery. So I'm seeing loads of businesses pivoting and it's phenomenal. Let's talk about restaurant for a, just a quick second. So uh, yes, restaurants are doing home deliveries and in New York City, that's kind of just sort of baked into the ecosystem. There was yeah. Grubhub or Seamless, but like, let's say you're a restaurant in a, you know, a highway shopping mall, but you had a good amount of customers, you know, on the weekends from the local town or whatever, you're saying, figure out who your customers are, contact them, maybe, you know, targeted advertising or you have an email list or whatever, and maybe do some sort of, uh, not only say you're available for home deliveries, but is there more to it? Like, hey, we'll deliver a week's worth of meals to you every week or blah, blah, blah. Or what, what are you, how are they pivoting? That's different than the way they normally do it. Yeah, so I think a lot of it comes down to how well they know their customers. Do they have access to them in the methods that you've said? And it's if they're a great restaurant and they have a really loyal customer base and they do great food and they do great service, then the consumer, in my opinion, is going to want to still have an experience of that, even though they're locked down and they're staying at home. So it's those kind of loyal raving fans. And, and what's great about social media is when like I, I did it. So my, uh, my my local Italian restaurant, she pivoted, went online. Uh, you know, we uh, we bought some stuff, bought some alcohol from her as well, had a great, um, great meal at home. And then we shared that on Facebook. And then the following night, you know, she had to get more people into the kitchen um, to service the demand. And she's doing phenomenally well because all of her friends and all of her good customers like me, they're sharing that experience and, and it's going viral. But the sad thing, James, is a lot of people, they just don't want to do that. They don't want to think outside the box. They're stuck in the traditional way of doing things. But unfortunately, we're in a different world right now. And my message to people that want to own a business is go and buy a business that an owner doesn't want to pivot, buy it, and then you pivot that business and you make those improvements and you change your model and you will do phenomenally well, not just now, but also when this thing ends, because as I said before, I think a lot of behaviors um, are going to change. You know, I'm certainly not going to eat out as much as I used to once this was all over. You know, my family and I, you know, we love kind of, um, you know, evening dinner times. You know, we, we, we sit down, we can all talk about our day. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm locked in my office for most of the day doing stuff. Uh, you know, my son's being homeschooled, so he's doing all of his stuff. My wife's in the garden and taking care of the dogs. So at night, you know, it's our favorite part of the day. We all sit down and, and you know, we talk about our day. 
and, and obviously we don't want to cook all the time um but getting all of our favorite foods from all of our favorite restaurants you know kind of delivered to the house it it kind of gives us the best of both worlds yeah. so I, I think you'll see a lot of that going forward well i i agree but but two things one is you know yes behaviors will change maybe we it's a little bit uncertain like you you say you'll change your behavior but you know young younger people are still going to go out on dates so they're going to need to go to a restaurant or you know they're going to need to go out someplace and the other thing is you know it's like right now you can view this quarantine almost as like a drug rehab so when somebody goes when a drug addict goes to rehab they seem to get off the drugs they're like i'm never going to do it again and then when they go back to their old circumstances you know 95 times out of 100 they start using drugs again and i'm wondering if after the lockdown's over we follow that model more rather than the fact that rather than maybe this Stockholm syndrome that we're going through now, where we're just listening to the guards and not, you know, we don't realize that once we get back into the normal world, we're going to get back to our normal habits. Yeah. And I, I think you're going to see some of that naturally, but uh, you know, the, the fundamental rule for me in all business is find out what your customers want and give it to them better than anybody else. So if you take a restaurant, uh, everyone's, you know, the only way a restaurant's making money right now is if they're ordering and, and, and having it home delivered. But then, say, a month from now, um, a lot of those customers will want to go back and, and eat inside of the restaurant. But some of them won't. And, and I think the testament of a great business is, is to do both uh, or figure out, you know, where's your highest margin? Where can you make the most money? Where can you have the, the most impact? So maybe they have to do both. Maybe... I know in the UK, the whole kind of online delivery scenario, it's not as mature as it is in the United States. So I know when I'm in but when I'm in my place in Baltimore, you know, I can go on Grubhub or Uber Eats and 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 get whatever I want. In the UK, where I live in the middle of Lancashire countryside, we don't even have Uber. Um, there are no restaurants within 10 miles from me that have uh, a Grubhub or, or anything kind of UK similar. It's all really focused in in the towns or cities and what's really interesting is a lot of these restaurants you know they've opened up shopify stores and and doing all these different things um and they're going directly to the customer so they're not going through like an intermediary and then what's interesting is a lot of the restaurants in in my local town which is called clitheroe which is about 10 miles from where i live in lancashire um their other issue was well okay we can make all this stuff um and obviously we can make more money because you know we're not we can turn the whole restaurant into a kitchen and a prep place but how do we get the food to customers so they're all they're all out partnering with the taxi companies and again we don't have this uber app that connects everything together so the restaurateurs they're calling the local taxi guys and saying look you're obviously not driving people around right now or you shouldn't be um how about you take meals to people that deliver so this is how the taxi companies in the uk in the countryside they're, they're making lots of money uh, and they're actually making more money because they can deliver you know in the heated bags you know 10 meals at once so, so they, they're getting they, ba they basically converted themselves from a human transportation company to a general transportation company yes and, it, and it's interesting that whilst in the us and in the big country in the big towns and cities in the uk this has been going on for a while with uh with you know just eat which is our version of grubhub in the city or an uber eats and all those different things what's this coronavirus is forcing a lot of these small kind of countryfied businesses to kind of you know get with the times they're doing it 
because it's their only way that they're actually going to stay in business. But they're not only surviving, some of these businesses are thriving. So there's a that this category of businesses that uh, were in one industry, but with a little bit of thinking, they could pivot to, to kind of thrive during today's times and they yes. won't necessarily go down in post coronavirus, but there's an opportunity to acquire these companies before they realize they could pivot. And I guess there's a fourth category, which is companies that have slowed down to the point where they're pretty much out of business right now, but they'll come back just as strong. They're not necessarily anti-fragile, but they're resilient. They'll just come back as strong after coronavirus. But this whole situation might've said, you know what, I'm throwing in the towel. Yeah, and obviously their ability to do nothing but still trade through this obviously comes down to their capital reserves, what government uh, furlough grants or, or, or funds that they're, they're coming in. I must say it's a lot easier to access that kind of money in the United Kingdom. Uh, I know in the US for uh, for two of my businesses, uh, we missed the boat. Um, a bit like what you were talking about, you know, Ruth's Chris and Shake Shack got all the money. Um, you know, my, my small businesses, you know, didn't. But uh, we're pivoting where we need to. And, you know, we've got good capital reserves, so we'll be, um, you know, we'll be absolutely fine. So, so uh, like, after, let's say, let's say business is fully reopened across the U.S., you know, more or less uh, on June 1st. What does that, what, what, what do you think that means? So my, my guess is there will be more businesses for sale. Three things. There will be more businesses for sale. There'll be fewer yep. buyers looking to buy businesses, at least immediately, because yes. we'll all be waiting for, you know, the headlines in the newspapers will be saying second wave coming, might need another shutdown, blah, blah, blah. So people will kind of wait on the sidelines a little bit. So there'll be less buyers. And then my guess also is just some businesses, some business models won't be as good anymore and can't pivot. So for instance, if you're a, if you're a pizza restaurant in the city, it's probably not too many ways you could pivot and probably your rent's really high. And I don't know. So, so what's, let's say June 1st, before things, before the stimulus really kicks in and the economy in a best case scenario starts to surge, uh, what should I do if I want to buy a business? I want to buy a business. What should I do? Where should I look? How should I contact people? What should I be thinking of? Like what sort of businesses should I buy then on June 1st? Again, this is after coronavirus, so there might not be as much need for ventilators or whatever. What, what, how should I be thinking? So once the company reopens, uh, so the country reopens, then I, I think that's a tide that, that will lift all boats. So I, I think a lot of businesses will get a big uptick spike in revenue. So hairdressers, tanning salons, chiropractors, dental practices, retail stores, restaurants, bars, um, entertainment venues like your comedy club. I think they're all going to see because a lot of people – uh, like the doors will be open, like everyone's going to kind of run out. But then I think within kind of four to six weeks and things start to settle down, you know, that that's the time really to then be having a cold, hard look at things. And and a lot of it still then for me comes down to, you know, basic business fundamentals. You know, what businesses can A, you add value to? So don't buy a business in a space that you know nothing about. If you've got a passion for a particular industry and you've got some chops in that space, go and buy a business in a place that you know you understand and you can you can add value to. And then the, the different methods of finding businesses, you know, the big four that we talk about 
is number one, you know, go build relationships with people. So when, when people decide they want to sell the business, uh, before they go anywhere near a business broker, and only 20% of businesses actually end up selling through business brokers, the other 80% are sold through their personal networks. So if you want to sell a business, you'll typically go and talk to four people, your wealth manager, your CPA, your lawyer, and then a bank or a financier that trades with you or has put money into your business or you're giving them deposits. So go and talk to those people. And those people have access to what I call off-market deal flow. So businesses that they're for sale, but they haven't yet taken the step of hiring a business broker, paying the fee and getting the business listed somewhere online like bizbysell.com or, or, or something like that. And then you can leverage a lot of social media as well. When, when I started my deal-making career 27 and a bit years ago now, we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have Google, we didn't have LinkedIn. You couldn't leverage social media to make connections. And, and this is one of the methods that we coach people on through our programs is how you can build these networks virtually and also in person and use them as a pump to get access to deal flow. It makes so much sense like to, to um, ask, like let's say my accountant deals with 500 clients uh, to talk to my accountant about, uh, hey, what's who do you, what clients out there might be having some troubles right now? Maybe they need uh, to sell their business. Uh, that's, a, that's a great idea. Yeah, and then what's interesting is your accountant then has, he has a vested interest to help you. Because if he's got a business that he represents, he can act for the seller through that transaction and get closing fees from the seller. Or if he doesn't have a client that meets your specification, let's say you wanted to buy uh, a laundromat or another comic book store or whatever, and he doesn't have one of those clients, he's sufficiently networked with all the other CPAs in town and beyond that he can call them all up and say, hey, my client James wants to buy a laundromat. Um, do you have any clients that are looking to sell? And one of them will say, well, actually, yes, I do. I have a laundromat client. He wants to relocate to California. He doesn't want to stay in New York anymore. He's got this great business, got great cash flow. He wants to sell it. Then your CPA can act for you on the buying side, do the due diligence on the numbers, help you close the deal. And then you pay his fees as part of your closing costs once you take ownership of the business. So it's all about finding that kind of angle where that kind of deal intermediary can kind of lean in and support you either on the buy side, so helping you buy the business, or acting for a client on the sell side and helping the client project manage that deal through to its conclusion. So that's number one, build relationships. Um, but I, one question about this, you mentioned, you know, try to find a business in your area of expertise. What if I've been a paralegal for Procter & Gamble for 20 years and I just got let go because of all this coronavirus stuff? I don't know. Crest Toothpaste is is laying people off. And, uh, you know, what if I don't really think I have – what if I don't know what my expertise is? Are there any businesses I could be looking at? Yeah, so so there's three – there's kind of three levels to this. The, the, the one is there are some people in this world that have what I call horizontal skill sets. So I'm one because I'm a dealmaker. Any lawyer, any CPA, anybody that's a phenomenal marketer uh, that can really go into any business and really add a lot of value. So that's category one. Category number two is obviously you really know a sector 
um, and you've got experience in it. So sellers and financiers and all these other people will, will take you really seriously. But if you have, if you don't have experience in a sector like that and you're passionate about it, you want to buy a business in something that you don't know or understand, go and partner with somebody that does. So if you're prepared to do the heavy lifting of finding the deals, arranging the meetings, pulling all the data, kind of being the, the coach of the team, but you need somebody with a little bit of gray hair that's been around the block a few times to help you with that deal, you know, go find somebody, go on LinkedIn, go and find somebody that has got the manufacturing chops or uh, you want to buy a laundromat, you know, nothing about the industry whatsoever. Go and find somebody that's used to own a laundromat, partner with them. They'll help you do the deal. They'll help you add value to the business. And then you can share the ownership with that person and then go and buy a load more. I see. So, okay. So number one was build relationships. What's number two? You said you have four steps. Yeah. Number one was build relationships. Number two is do the same thing, but leveraging social media. So leveraging Facebook, leveraging LinkedIn, leveraging, I leverage blogs and groups and forums and all sorts of things. You know, I'll join, if I, if I want to buy a web design firm in Chicago, there'll be a group somewhere on the internet about web design firms in Chicago. So I join that group, I communicate with people, I add value. And then once they get to know me, like me and trust me, then I'll start asking questions does anybody know of a business for sale? And then all the hands go up. Yeah, I have a business like that. I'm happy to sell. Great. So that's what we call deal origination. So that's number two. And then number three is you can go to business brokers. Only about 20% of businesses sold actually go through brokers. Uh, the business brokerage market is generally unregulated and unlicensed. Um, a lot of them don't have what I call corporate finance skills. Most of them are sales and marketers. Um, they work on the volume game. They'll sign up a load of businesses, stick them online and wait for people to kind of, you know, find those deals. Uh, some brokers are very, very good. They're very proactive. Uh, they're great to build relationships with. Um, I typically only work with brokers once a deal has been listed at least six months. Then the tire kickers have been round. No one wants to buy it. Then I'll swoop in and, uh, you know, I, I can structure a creative deal for that. And, and so, then, so you mentioned bizbysell.com. Is there any others? There's loads. You've got businessesforsale.com. Uh, you've got Empire Flippers uh, or Flipper for online deals. And then just, just go to Google, um, type in business brokers uh, plus engineering plus retail plus Chicago plus Illinois, whatever. And there's just tons and tons and tons of them all, all listed there. So click on them. They have all their listings there. You can uh, one click, you know, download the one sheet fill in um, an online non-disclosure. So then the broker's happy to give you the financial information. And then you can start looking at the uh, at the deal. You know, what's the cash flow? And and How let's say let's say I use a business broker, right? So I see, oh, here's a business that's for, they, they make 20,000 a year in profit. They're for sale for $40,000. So it's great. It's like, it's like, you know, buying a, a bond that pays 50% interest. If, yep. if I don't have to be involved in the business that much, that's amazing. Yep. And it is now like, and, and before we get to your step number four, is now a good time where I could negotiate because nobody, again, this uncertainty is, is the biggest, the biggest heuristic or the biggest factor of the new economy that's coming is that we don't know. And so before we know, is it, can I go in right now and say, oh yeah, I'll buy your business, but not for 40,000, for 30,000, because I assume 
business is going to be lower later. And is there room for, you think if there, is there more room for negotiation right now? So there is more room for negotiation, but the way to negotiate, in my opinion, is not to necessarily negotiate on the cost, but to negotiate on the deal structure. Mm. So I would happily pay $40,000 for that business, but pay it over four years or three years and and pay for that business using the business's cash flow. A lot of people that look into buying businesses get really hung up about the multiple. So most businesses are valued at a multiple of cash flow. So if you've got a business doing $100,000 a year in free cash flow, uh, the average is around two and a half. So that business is worth around $250,000. I'd happily pay $400,000 for that business if I could pay for it over 10 years uh, because I'm still making $60,000 a year in cash flow after I've paid the seller, and that's before I even grow the business. Um, so I think where you can get a lot more negotiation into a deal now is not necessarily – the valuation, although I do think valuations will come down, I think you'll have a lot more chance of success if you just pay the asking price, but park the majority, if not all of the money into future payments. And that, that's called seller financing. And you can also do it through things called earnouts, which means you only pay if the business hits a certain level of revenue or a certain level of cash flow. What happens if, I mean, it's paying it over time. It seems like you're, it's a good way because you're also reducing some risk. So let's say yeah. the business falls apart in a year and you go through whatever the legal process of shutting down the business, whether it's bankruptcy or something else, and you, you, you won't have to pay. Do you have to pay after that in your deal in the way you structure it? No, because what would normally happen in, so let, let's say you were selling a business, James, it was in $100,000 a year in free cash flow. And you said to me, I want a two times multiple so, Carl, cut me a check for 200K and you can have my business. And I said, well, actually, James, I'll give you $400,000 for your business, but I'm going to pay you over 10 years or eight years, whatever that is. And that means is you don't need to go in and operate that business, but you're still getting the cash flow that you are probably getting from the owner of that business. Then what happens is if I don't pay you the money for whatever reason, as the previous owner, you'll get the right to take the business back from me. So mm. if I bought your business and it just didn't work out, I'd just hand you back the keys and walk away. I see. I see. So it's built into uh, the the debt itself. Yes, it just is. Like, so, just like any other, just like any other, like, like if you, if you buy a house on debt, the bank takes it over if you don't pay. Exactly. It's exactly the same thing. So providing you give the seller that security, then it's a win-win because you're allowed, to, you're then buying the business without using your own money or even using any external financing. You're just paying the seller over time from the cash flows that the business generates. And if it doesn't work out for whatever reason, the only risk to yourself is your risk of time. So you've spent some time doing that deal and owning that business, whether you're running it yourself or you've got somebody else running it, that's the only risk to yourself. But if you've taken some money out of the deal, then obviously, you know, you're in the black. That's why I go back to the rationale that, you know, buy a business in a sector that you know something about and you understand and you can add value to or partner with somebody that does, then you're just, you're just maximizing your chances of really adding value because there's, there's three ways to make money from buying a business through 
what we're what we call a leverage buyout. So buying a business using other people's money. So the maximum amount of money that you're going to make is when you grow it and sell it. So if I bought your business for, let's say I ended up paying $400,000 for your business by paying you over time, and I grow that business to where it's doing half a million dollars of free cash flow, and then I can probably sell that for, say, six times. I've just made $3 million from growing and selling your business, uh, less any money I still owe you at the time that I sell. So let's say I still owed you 200K when I sold it. I'm walking away with $2.8 million for doing that deal. So that, that's where you make the most money. But then obviously, as the owner of a business, you're, you're entitled to the cash flow the business generates, net what you're paying the seller to service the deal. But then in some cases, what you can do is you can buy a business that uh, there's cash in the business the day you close that the seller's not taking. You don't need it to trade the business. You can just take it out as a distribution and pocket that money. So in in most cases, I used to do that actually all the time. You know, when I first started buying my own businesses back in 2008, I would only do deals where I could take some money off the table. Um, and it was kind of short-term thinking because the more cash flow you leave in a business, it's more ammunition for you to grow it. So you can grow it faster and bigger, which means that when you sell it, it's worth more and you're generating many multiples of that money in your exit price because you're exiting on a multiple of the cash flow that the business is generating. Right. So, so I want to, I want to go over that quickly because uh, it's, I just want it seems like maybe there's even more ways to make money. So you make money by uh, one way is buying it, growing it and selling it. So yep. if it, if it, if you're buying it and selling it for two and a half times cash flow and you increase the cash flow, then you're making, you know, two and a half times your increased cash flow. So you make you make more money. Not it, only that, not only that, the more cash flow the business has, the higher the multiples, so it compounds. Right. So 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 I was gonna say the second way is by expanding the multiple. So for a small business, it might be two and a half times cash flow, but for a business with 10 million in earnings, it might be 20 times cash flow. And then there's the whole spectrum. In between, that's how the exactly. stock market basically works. So, so that's the incentive to basically buy. Like we talked before about, uh, uh, you could buy a laundromat that's making a hundred k for two times cash flow. But if you buy ten of this what laundromats, and now you're making, you know, a million in cash flow, maybe you could sell the whole thing for three times cash flow, and you just made a million dollars when you back out all your expenses. You made an extra million. Absolutely. And not only that, when you when you buy lots of businesses in the same sector, which is called a roll-up, what you will see is there'll be lots of economies of scale that you can generate. So if you look at a laundromat, um, one of their biggest expenses is capital equipment. If you're buying for 10 laundromats instead of one, you're going to be paying a lot less per unit. So all that cost-saving drops to the bottom line. So your cash flow goes up even more, then your multiple goes up even more. So you get that compounding effect in terms of value. So I, I so these are the three ways to make money. And uh, you were mentioning the, the four ways to buy. The last one was kind of the, the business brokers. Is there a number four? Yeah, number four, go to events, which obviously you can't do right, right now. You That's can do all the, all the other three on Zoom or Skype or whatever you want to do. But um, what one of my favorite methods of deal origination is 
when and, and a lot of people that do deals they're in sales or or they're engineers they go to conventions so they're out there networking and doing various things so when you go to a trade event or any sort of event what i do is i i call the organizers ahead of the time and in a lot of cases you can get the attendee list and i'll look i'll look them up or i, I hire a va to look it up and based on my spec she'll tell me the five businesses that i should definitely connect with and and i go in and i have five playing cards uh small size and on the front i write five things down about the owner and on the back i write five things down about the business so when i bump into them well i seek them out when i see them at the cocktail happy hour or at lunch i'll go and sit next to them and then i'll know everything about them so i can build rapport i can build a relationship inside of about 60 seconds because i'll find them on facebook I'll know where they travel. I'll know what sports team they support. I'll know what kind of wine they like to drink. I'll know where they've used to work before they founded this business. So I can have this intelligent conversation with them. And it sounds a little bit spooky, um, but I've done, no, some of my best, I've done some of my best deals um, leveraging that tactic. So, so, so this is clearly still a viable way to make money uh, is essentially buying in many cases with no money down using these techniques you described. And we'll talk yep. more about how to, uh, if people want to find out more details, but, but what's gonna, you know, and, and you've also described, you, you think the economy, and, and it, it, it seems clear with all this stimulus money dropping down on the world economy in some form or the other, the economy is going to be spending just as much money as before. Like, and just some insight, I talked to somebody who was the, deputy chair of the St. Louis Fed, Federal Reserve. In fact, that podcast is out uh, th this morning as we're speaking. So our, this podcast will be out in a few days from now, but uh, the podcast I'm talking about is out earlier. But he basically said they modeled um, how much money would be pulled out of the economy during this quarter. And the stimulus package basically replaces dollar for dollar that money. So he expects as in some pockets, the same amount of spending eventually, but where but 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 your assumption is a there'll be more deals because there'll be a lot more uncertainty yes. so that'll probably reduce the multiple or at least if not reduce the multiple it'll it'll potentially allow you to have more creative deal structures yeah um because of the uncertainty and uh is there any industries and you you listed you, the, some of the industries that you thought specifically uh you would be looking for and, and you suggested that in some industries, because they're going to have a spike right now, you'll wait four to six weeks after the reopening. But what industries do you think you'll have extra opportunities? Do you think it'll be easier in general for people to do deals? Like, what's your kind of summary of uh, of the new normal for for people who are interested in getting wealthy this way? Because again, I just described a laundromat scenario where with basic economics, you're going to make a million dollars in a fairly short amount of time. Yeah, so I'm going to ask that question in two ways. Um, just going back to what I said before, really, you should do deals in sectors that you know and you understand. And if you don't, you should go and partner with somebody that does. Because it's one thing buying a business, but as the business owner, whether you're an owner investor like me or an owner manager, it, it's just a lot more fun when you're doing deals in sectors that you know something about and you can add value to. But there are sectors that are a lot better to do these types of deals. So anything in the engineering space, anything in the manufacturing space, anything in technology, anything in transportation, freight, logistics, and also things in construction, 
you know, those are sectors. Most of them, most businesses, them, if the business owner is pivoting, like the examples I shared before, they will survive what we're going through. In a lot of cases, they, they can actually thrive. There are some sectors where um, I don't like doing deals. So th there's a big kind of wave right now in people uh, trying to buy like, like an Amazon business. So someone set up an Amazon store, uh, Amazon's doing all the drop shipping, and there's a lot of people kind of trying to go in and, and buy those businesses. I, I don't like those types of deals. Um, even though there's a lot more people buying stuff online. So I'm not contradicting myself there. But the problem with an Amazon business is Amazon owns your customer relationship. And Amazon can change its policies overnight and you can lose your business. But if you're if you're if you're an e-commerce website though, selling from your site or selling from a Shopify site, it's not you it's not the same problem. You're just talking about people who have like Amazon stores. Yeah. So any any business that's selling online, uh, that's not tied to Amazon, that's running their own traffic, they own their own customer, they're generating their own email list, they're able to make multiple offers, they're able to affiliate partner with with lots of other companies as well. You know, those are great businesses to buy, uh, especially now because as we talked about before, you've got this increased volume of of people buying online because they can't physically go to stores and. Once the country reopens, um, a lot of people, I don't think, will modify their behavior. I think, you know, people get used to, they get into patterns of doing things a certain way. Uh, I know there's things that I'm buying online right now that I've never even thought about purchasing before, um, like like plants in my garden. Um, I always used to go to the, 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 we call them garden centers in the UK, in the country, where you, you drive up. I open the boot of my wife's Range Rover. I fill it with all this stuff. I take it home. She beats me up because the soil all over the back of her new car. Um, and obviously, those are all closed right now. So my wife is in the garden saying, hey, we need some more color. We need all this stuff. We found this website. had great reviews. You know, we bought a couple of thousand dollars worth of stuff. It all came. It's stunning. We put it all in. You know, we're never going to go to the garden center again. We're going to buy everything online. So I think you'll see a lot of that behavior modification um, in, in terms of as consumers, how we behave, how we act, how we buy things, how we even consume things. So anything online is great for me. Would you buy a restaurant right now? Would I buy a restaurant right now? I would if I could pivot that restaurant to service my customers online. So I would look for a restaurant that, number one, knew its customer base, so had access to its customers already on Facebook or through an email list, and they are kind of frequently doing promotions and all these different things. And I would want to buy a business that's got a really good brand and a really good reputation where I know out there in the marketplace there is a crowd of raving fans that will still support this business and help it thrive through what we're doing. Normally, um, I'm not a massive fan of restaurants. The reason being is uh, one of the biggest challenges in a restaurant is, is getting the right chef. Um, and I'm not from that space. So if I was to do it, uh, I would partner with somebody. So my, my business partner in Prox Capital, uh, Adam Markley, uh, James, who you met last yeah. when I came to your house, um, he used to be the financial controller for uh, for Ruth's Chris 
uh, and he knows a lot about the right. restaurant industry. He and I, I actually, know that. yeah, he and I actually uh, were co-owners of a uh, of a restaurant in Baltimore. Oh, really? uh, so we, so I, yeah, I'm actually a, a partner in a, in a restaurant, and again, that business is is pivoting. It, it's the breakfast lunch place uh, near our offices, and uh, that. Where, where, what's it is, pivoting to? Like making PPE? <laughs> no, 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 no. Just just taking all their business online, um, and then basically utilizing virtually their entire footprint uh, for kind of food prep and just expanding capabilities because it's not a very big place um but uh, again just pivoting and, and just giving customers what they want but we know our customer base we're connected to them all the time you, uh, so we're able to reach out and, and keep engaging with them do you think movie theaters will get back to normal um that's a really good question actually i think the massive chains probably not um what what we've i think naturally a lot more people have pivoted into, you know, Netflix and Amazon Prime and all these other different uh, channels. So I think a lot more people uh, will, will stick doing that. But what I've seen, um, I've not seen a lot of this in the US, but what I've seen in the UK is like in my local town, um, there's this great um, like new cinema that opened just before Christmas. I actually watched the last, the latest Star Wars movie in there with mm. my son. And you go in and it's like you pay double the price of a normal cinema ticket, but you go in and you've got huge, big, like comfy sofas. They'll deliver food and drinks to uh, to your table. It's just a completely like different customer experience. So I, I think companies like that, theaters like that, will um, will will do okay once we come out of uh, of lockdown because they're you know watching the movies really the commodity they're focusing on you know the real customer experience of families getting together you know great food and drink delivered to your um, to your table you know a fantastic experience where you can relax um, so but I I think the major cinema chains yeah I'm not so sure the the, the three industries I fear for big cinema chains cruise ships and airlines those are the big three that yeah i'm i'm a little bit concerned about so so carl this is uh, super exciting what i really like doing is is this could actually it's it's of course it's been entertaining and knowledgeable but i think that there's actionable stuff here people could go take your advice and change their lives and i mean if i was if i was switching careers or trying to figure out what to do post coronavirus or you know, whatever, I would certainly consider this, particularly considering that probably many local businesses are going out of business or at least changing or selling or whatever. So how can people find more about you and, and what you do? And is there any kind of guide or, or something that they can read more about this? Yeah, sure. So I actually have a seven day business buying training course. And uh, is it online or they have to go someplace or no? Yeah, it's online. It's, it's online, uh, pure online fulfillment. And what, uh, what I've decided to do, um, you know, as, as a great thank you and a great offer to you and your, uh, your phenomenal, um, tribe is we're going to let you guys have it uh, at a 75% discount, but, uh, please don't share this <laughs> into the outside world. Uh, so if I um, share this podcast as widely as possible. Yeah. So if, if you go to trainwithcarl.com forward slash James, 
um, we've given all of your tribe um, a secret 75% discount. Oh, oh, Carl, that's excellent. Hold on. Let me just go to that URL and see. Trainwithcarl.com slash James. Uh, and yeah, sound, looks good. So, uh, Carl, I really appreciate it. And thank you so much. And thank you, for you know what? Me. You know what? Also, I'm going to invite people to ask questions on Twitter, which is basically you're really good at figuring out industry by industry, how an industry could pivot. Uh, people should throw out what kind of businesses they either have or, or are looking at on Twitter. And maybe you and I could either answer them on Twitter or answer them on a future podcast. So absolutely so would love to. And again, Carl, I really appreciate it. So that's train, trainwithcarl.com. Yep. Slash James. Yep. So trainwithcarl.com slash James. They get 75% off and they could learn how to do all this. And Carl, once again, I appreciate it on uh, such great lessons on on buying a small business and how anybody can do it and, and what's going to happen in this new normal. Such great advice, which I'm, I'm already thinking about several businesses I'm, I'm involved in and how they could do this. And uh, I look forward to our next chat and, and enjoy the rest of your time home if you can. I will. Thank you, James. Great, Thanks, to, uh, great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time consuming and difficult. That's where one travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel.